This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red Channel, Janet Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Walter Winchell, Walter Winchell, Walter Winchell. Hello and welcome to episode six of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that gallops through post-war history and the reasons why the world today is as it is, all done through the medium of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce, this is Katie Puckrit and Katie, as always, our minds are ready to be expanded, astonished, quite possibly blown. Possibly. I mean, my mind is um, just an empty vessel that's quite fertile. So any seed planted there, it's going to it's gonna flourish. What can I say? I have to say, I don't know that much about Walter Winchell, though. Same as me. Like Some of the people Billy has mentioned to us so far, I knew a little bit about. Yeah. And their sort of place in American history and what they've done. Walter Winchell, I know almost nothing about. I, I have to say, I do know that he was a gossip columnist and there was that patch in mid-century America of columnists like uh, Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons, Elsa Maxwell, who were feared. And and I know more about the women, I think, than Walter Winchell. So I am ready to be fertilized today by our esteemed guest, who is Dr. Chris Shoup Worrell. He's a historian of the media and popular press, and he's a lecturer in media and journalism. So welcome, Chris. You're the person to expand our brains. Hi there. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'd like to think so. Uh, yes, re- really looking forward to this. Wonderful. So um, how do we get into this guy? What, what's your first question about this, Tom? Well, Chris, like, there's been some wrong-uns on our list so far, and I think there's going to be more wrong-uns as we go through this list. Um, Walter Winchell sounds like the sort of guy who could do a lot of damage, but I want to get a sense of, first of all, in my mind, what does he look like and what does he sound like? Wow, uh, that's a really interesting question uh, because so much of who Walter Winchell was and how he's continued to be uh, remembered is about his image. So if you could imagine in your head the most stereotypical Hollywood American cinema journalist, like from those old films from the 40s and the 50s, like with the hats, the fedoras and the voice and the running to the phone booth, that is Walter Winchell and is actually an image that he himself helped to create. Um, his voice and who he was was a product of his early life uh, where uh, before he was a journalist, he was actually a performer. Um, he was an actor and a singer. He was in uh, vaudeville. So like uh, pantomime and musical shows and skit shows. So a lot of his energy, a lot of his um, his personality came, I think, was rooted in his in his in his roots as an entertainer and i think that his his role as an entertainer then fed into him as a journalist which what's is what made him so controversial now obviously later in his life who he was changed and that same uh, bravado ended up uh, almost evolving from being entertaining into being cruel and as as i'm sure um is perhaps most famously known for him he 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 really could be cruel using his platform mm. um but yeah, he was a, he was an extraordinary man. He was he was quite handsome uh, to accounts. Like he was he was very clean cut. He was very um, when he was in vaudeville, he was kind of like held up as like being like a bit a bit of a poster child. And then when is she? 
Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, and then into his, into his later life, into his adulthood as a journalist, when he became so famous and he was on advertising and then later on, he was on radio and then later he was on cinema posters and then later television briefly. Um, he looked like a very clean cut American journalist. Over time, that image began to fade as I suppose, not wanting to get too morose, will we all? Um, yes. But um, yeah, he was, he, was, he was an extraordinary figure who sort of cuts that image of the classic American newsman. Yes. And so uh, words were his uh, paint colors. I mean, that's how he really formed a picture first in journalism and then on the radio. And I am particularly interested in what was the kind of rhythm and the pattern and the uh, the appeal of his delivery, because like you say, he came from the stage. So he obviously had a sense of the theatrical. What was it specifically about his delivery that caught people's ears um i think what made him so attractive to listen to uh and was actually something he worked really hard on was the speed of of how he spoke and he actually found it quite hard um to transition from working in written form in newspapers to working on the radio and a lot of that uh, is explored in his uh, by his biographer rather uh, neil gabler um who explores how when he was in vaudeville, he often suffered from crippling anxiety and stage fright of this seeming terror of not ending up brilliant. Like he was terrified of, of maybe being seen as a fraud or like not being very good. And, and so when he was first uh, introduced to radio, as a potential medium. And obviously that was the first time that many people heard him speak because obviously previously it, 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 it was only in the written form. Um, he worked really hard at it. He was terrified. And one of the things he picked up on was that speed. He wanted it, there's a really nice line of, he wanted to create uh, America's garden fence. He wanted to create this sort of chatter, this back and forth. And yeah. so in how he spoke, one of the key things was just how quickly he spoke. I think it was somewhere in the region of 180 words to 200 words a minute. So like mm, rattled yeah. off like a machine gun, just this like that, 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 that going through. Um, yeah, so I can imagine there was a real sense of urgency when he was conveying this, you know, it just amounts to tittle-tattle and, and uh, prurient interest in people's love life to begin with, I would imagine. And um, But somehow he made it sound like it's like, uh, you know, world in action, you know, reporting from the front lines. And it sort of made you just as interested, didn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It was so interesting sort of reading and actually listening to how he talked of just how much that I think our modern memory of the American newsman is Walter Winchell. It's that rapid fire. It's kind of speaking in that kind of voice and sort of rattling mm -hmm. along and and even using technology within his radio. So one of his most uh, known things, apart from some of his catchphrases and the language that he used, was he'd use like the sound of a typewriter or the sound of a telegram would come through on his audio production. So there's even there that sense of like the urgency, like it's just come in. This is brand new information that I have to tell you now because it's so it's so hot off the press. So he, he was the one who created that. It, it's now kind of a, a, a trope or a cliche where you have that do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do in the background while somebody's yeah. like, and he, he was the one who started that? Uh, yes, yeah, he was. Um, uh -huh. There's always a difficult conversation when you have in history of like who was the first. So was he the first uh, gossip columnist 
Maybe not. Was he the first person ever to use sound tech? No. But because he was so popular, he ends up creating his own legacy of he was the first for many people, because for many, he was the first person that they listened to. And what a lot of people. I think it was somewhere in the region of two thirds of the adult American population were estimated to listen to his radio Whoa. show at his yeah. peak. Which is just... That's power, isn't it? It's That's so incredible much power. power. Yeah, so much power. And with that comes responsibility and maybe a lack of. I love this, this catchphrase he apparently had, Katie. So when he starts his broadcasts, and I guess at this point that, that other radio stations are quite conservative and quite demure. And then you've got Walter Winchell going, Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. <laughs> That's different. I know, it is different. Like, And the idea of beyond the the coasts of America, we're going to all the ships at sea. Like, no stone is being left unturned. I am interested in the fact that he was so innovative in terms of his idiomatic expressions like didn't he coin the word frenemy i read that oh and a uh, blessed event was his euphemism for <laughs> uh for giving birth and uh i guess uh you know he's quite waggish but these are all expressions that really stick in the memory and i mean i i think really i know walter winchell more through those expressions than realizing that he's the person who coined them mm, so it's a really interesting thing, yet yet again with uh, Walter Winchell, that it's a question of whether he coined them or whether he was the first to broadcast them. So a lot of his language and this particular um, slang vernacular that ended up uh, defining a lot of his uh, radio and written output is the product, arguably, of two things. So on the one hand, there's his... Um, his output from from when he was a performer, when he was on the stage, and he was used to singing and rhyming, and there's that same lyrical quality. But also, uh, a lot of his early career, that early writing for um, sort of trade magazines and gossip magazines, all around centered uh, to do with New York City and the, and the scene around theater, is his life was living that life. So he'd spend eight, 10 hours a day, every evening of his life for 10 years, sat in clubs and bars around the theaters of Broadway. And he'd hear these words and these people and these characters. And he ended up then taking that language on and then almost sharing it with the rest of America. And it's partly this idea of like how now we sort of see like um, Hollywood culture as like this other world that sort of like a lot of newspapers and tabloids and magazines and obviously now radio, television, podcasts will want to introduce their readers to, like this weird world. That's that's kind of what he did, but with um, in uh, the 20s and 30s with Broadway. Yeah, his access was amazing. I mean, that I think that was his calling card, the fact that, you know, he did have his table at the Stork Club and he was on, you know, intimate speaking terms with various luminaries in the, in the Broadway scene. And then um, I gather that that kind of opened up, like he started to have yearn for more distant horizons and, and a little bit more credibility. Yes, um, there's a really interesting um, hinging moment that you can see in his life and his career where you see his transition um, from this sort of this person of the people, this kind of speaking to the every person in this slang in sort of joking, celebrity focused way. And 
that hinge moment seems to be when he first met with uh, the recently elected Roosevelt uh, in 1933. And it seems to be that he was completely in love with FDR. And um, and probably the power associated with be, you know the proximity to the American president. Very possibly, yes. Um, so I think as well, I think there's a reason that he was welcomed to the White House because I think Roosevelt appreciated this is a person whom 50 million people listen to, having him not hate me. It's probably not the worst idea politically. Um, And it seems like that seemed to spark something within Walter where he suddenly thought, hang on, I could be not more, I could be different. There's a really nice line in his his biography where it's effectively, it's like that moment. It shows him and his broader appreciation of reading the national mood. So when he was a reporter in the 20s, like the roaring 20s, the jazz age, like he was invested in the shiny side. So the money, the glitz, the glamour, the fashion, the whatever, almost the opposite of, say, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who, of course, ridiculed that same period. And then into the 30s, into the Depression, you see a shift or an imagined shift where you see America start to think about itself in a more responsible way, a collective way, helping more people, wanting to almost act as like an international leader. And you see Walter Winchell become a part of that national mood and arguably helped shape that in his uh, reporting of corruption um, calling out uh, right-wing groups in the United States, which interestingly enough opened him up to what turned out to be a very long and very useful relationship with the head of the FBI, uh, which was something that for many people, even now you'd think, how could a journalist be so close to the head of the intelligence agency? And he was, and there was a proof of a really long relationship where he'd be handing information to Hoover. Wow. Think about gossip, Katie. Like, we can all turn our noses up at it, but we all love gossip, don't we? Oh, I, do. I don't turn my nose up at it. I don't know about you. You're trying to, like, put on the dog there. <laughs> I embrace it. But I'm wondering with him, with Winchell, he's clearly hearing all these stories, and people are probably telling them in confidence or not maybe expecting them to be public. So what's it like for him where... He's taking something that he's heard in the Stork Club or on Broadway and he's turning it into national news. Does, does this turn him, Chris, into into a hate figure for people? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, whether he was too powerful to hate is an interesting idea. I think he seemed to annoy a lot of people. <laughs> he annoyed a lot of the people he spoke to, a lot of the people he'd profile or leak things about. He was involved in in lawsuits, in libel cases. And actually, as a part of his career, he would often uh, make sure as part of his contracts with various newspapers and magazines that he could never be sued. So effectively, if there was a case against the magazine or newspaper he worked for, then it was the magazine or newspaper's fault, not his. So I think he appreciated that he was someone who was hateable (laughs) and that could annoy people and yet it seemed to work for him for so long because he was just so popular and so wealthy and almost that helped him be able to excuse his his behavior so he would move newspaper and a newspaper would suddenly increase its readership by 150,000 people within a month of him joining and and so as a result he could then head to the editor who would go maybe you should be saying less horrible things and he'd go but I am uh, making you loads of money. I'm read by loads of people. How dare you? And he was actually something that actually then ends up uh, defining his later career. I, th- I actually think that underlines his, uh, his longer history of spikiness. He didn't like to be challenged. 
He didn't like that at all. Now, some people who've written memoirs and his biography have been quite sympathetic towards that. Of they sort of trace it back to his early life, his childhood, and sort of sort of those general insecurities that many of us have and are very empathetic about that. But not many people, because they're feeling a bit insecure, would then destroy people's lives in the press, which is what he obviously would famously do with uh, Josephine Baker, arguably what he's most known for, most infamous for, I suppose. Uh, most infamous for in terms of the people he destroyed or just he was infamous for generally destroying people? I think that the he he actually had a, um, a list of uh, the people who'd annoyed him. He called it his drop dead list. And on that list, he'd have the people who'd sent him a wrong tip or sent him an iffy story or had maybe or had maybe spoken about him in a public venue in in a not very nice way or had maybe not even said hi to him in a club and then he'd have this list of people that he'd go right I'm never going to work with them again. Cool. I, I won't. I, I, well, well, yeah. <laughs> what an interesting way of calling him. And yeah, he was very petty. He was very, very petty. And actually, with regards to the people that he destroyed, the most famous one, I think, needs to be said with Walter Winchell, is Josephine Baker, the actress, civil rights activist. She was the first black woman to lead a Hollywood-speaking motion picture she is an icon. She deserves a legacy higher, arguably, than Walter Winchell. But he ends up, through an extraordinary set of circumstances, helping to destroy her career for 10 years. Whoa, ten, 10 years. 10 years. So the story goes that Josephine Baker, uh, she was a very uh, successful actress. And then um, around the Second World War, she moves to France and becomes a naturalized French citizen. And in part, and then after that, it is due to her opposition to racial segregation, something that actually Walter Winchell in his columns was himself also critical of, which is an interesting facet of his later attacks on her. So she then starts touring in the United States because she also sings, acts, the works. And she's traveling around clubs and she has a principle of trying to call out or to refuse to perform at venues that are racially segregated. And she heads to the, to the Stork Club, which, as we've already mentioned, was one of Walter Winchell's haunts. He'd lived there basically for decades. This was uh, the club where he'd uh, met with Herbert Hoover. This is where he'd met the head of the FBI and he had all these contacts. So Josephine, she heads to the club and she has an altercation in which people racially insult her. Walter Winchell is there. He's at the club. It's basically his club. He's seen this. So then Josephine Baker calls out Walter Winchell for basically, why haven't you offered me support? Because yeah. you have this history of calling out civil rights, right? And actually as a part of that, uh, Walter White, the head of the uh, NAACP, actually asked Walter Winchell, could you please write in your columns a, a, a defense of her? Like, this is wrong. You know this is wrong. After several efforts to say he wasn't there, which was a lie, to say that he hadn't seen what happened, which was a lie, he ends up finally writing a, a column. A column that I think is really interesting now in the context of like what we know now about like white privilege and uh, the white savior complex, right? So he writes this column where he says, okay, yeah, maybe she was racially abused. However, how dare she 
claim that I'm not anti-racist enough. Right. Wow. So he, he makes a situation that should not be about him, entirely about him. And from that point on, that then starts a conversation between those two in the public and in private, where he ends up then using that as a springboard to make her almost unhirable in the United States for a decade. Oh my goodness. That, that, there's so many character flaws just mushed together yeah. uh, right there. I mean, so thin-skinned, vengeful, uh, you know, just uh, amoral, you know, ethically vacant. Also, Katie, they, someone who likes dishing it out and they can't take it themselves. Nobody likes a little bitch. I mean, that, that <laughs> he's pathetic. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Let's hear more about him in a moment. First, we'll have some ads. Well, it's a quiz. But this time, it's a podcast. Yes! With me, Mikita Oliver. I was going to go with that at first, you know, I really was. I love a quiz. I'm nervous. Oh! How many edges does a 20p have? Uh. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, I'm doing so badly. We will quiz, we will chat, and then we will repeat forever. Just search Quiz Chat Repeat in your podcast app. Great, paid the bills. Good. Let's get back into the meat of the matter, Tom. The thing that I think is interesting even to begin with was the fact that he was on the side of right. I mean, he was, as you alluded to earlier, one of the first people to call out Adolf Hitler. You know, actually in Madison Square Garden in the 30s, there were big American Nazi gatherings, and uh, it was becoming quite the thing to uh, support the Nazi party. So the fact that he came out against it early is is almost against his character as we're now finding out that he's uh, he doesn't look out for other people. I actually think there's a really interesting sort of, and it really hits at the hypocrisy of who Walter Winchell was. And I think a lot of his particular attacks on Hitler and Nazism are a really interesting avenue into just what a weird and fascinating person he was. So what's important to remember is that Walter Winchell wasn't always called Walter Winchell. Originally, his family name was uh, Weinschel or Weinschel. He's the uh, grandson of a Russian emigre uh, who had left um, Russia uh, after the expulsion of Jewish people. And so he had preempted, so he is from uh, R- Russian Orthodox Jewish stock. He moves to um, he moves to New York. Obviously, his uh, his parents, his grandparents, and he's raised in what would now be seen as as poverty. Like he was he was apartment hopping with his family, you know, from one beds to two beds with loads of children, family members, relatives for years. He lived across Harlem. He lived across Brooklyn. Um, he had this really hard. He did have a really hard upbringing, and I think that upbringing and his particular exposure to and the histories he'd have heard from his parents and his grandparents about his life and and his people, I think really informed his particular attacks of Hitler and Nazism. And interestingly, of a character who actually helped him become the celebrity he is. Everyone's heard of the Lindbergh baby, right? Yes. The Lindbergh baby, Charles Lindbergh. So So the the Lindbergh baby who was kidnapped. That's right. Yes. So who was kidnapped and killed in Mm. what became known as the story of the century in America. It was arguably the first truly mass media event, like truly. And and this was when, like in the 20s or something? This was in the early 30s. Oh, early 30s. um, And what's fascinating is just that name, Charles Lindbergh, who was the father, 
just that character says a lot about who Walter Winchell was. So, Charles Lenber, famous aviator, uh, has his son, infant son, kidnapped and killed. Awful tragedy, an unimaginable tragedy that then becomes the trial of the century at which Walter Winchell is at the heart. Walter Winchell is one of the people at that trial of the person who was then found guilty of the kidnap and murder of the Lindbergh infant. One of the journalists said, who is this fucking child that they've let in? Because he behaved like it was all about him. So he'd be passing notes to get the scoops to his press offices. He'd be like hollering and heckling during the trial. And like when he was found eventually that this was the crime that he committed and this person was then sentenced to life. Sorry, actually, he was actually sentenced to death. Um, Walter Winchell allegedly like broke out to be like, haha, you see, look, I, I always told you he was guilty because he had been for his columns for weeks. He'd been calling out this person and saying, he's guilty, he's guilty. I mean, the definition you'd argue now of uh, libel. Um, so his career reaches a new height because of a tragedy that happened to Charles Lindbergh. The same Charles Lindbergh who would then become a very open Nazi sympathizer. Yes. Something that he would actually say he wasn't, but if you give press conferences where you say um, Roosevelt and the elites and the Jews are trying to take us to war, you, sorry, you're red a Nazi flag sympathizer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty big re like sign saying like warning this person might not be on the right side of history. And so Walter Winchell then calls out Charles Lindbergh, the same person who'd almost whose whose who, whose life had helped to create one aspect of his legacy then ends up becoming the same person who helps him to create the other aspect of his legacy. So just that one person ends up becoming almost like the, um, the example of Walter Winchell as a hack, as the tabloid, like everything that's wrong with tabloids, but also Walter Winchell at his best. Yeah. Walter Winchell as this, yeah, as this crusader. It sounds, it's interesting listening to you fleshing out this picture of Walter Winchell. It seems like more than a moral code, he has a nose for news. So he has an eye on what is going to be the most provocative stance to take. And so it's gossip. And then he realizes, okay, there's the case of the century. I got to get myself into that courthouse and be, you know, the eyes and ears and the voice of what's going on there. And then, oh, uh, you know, Hitler, Nazism is coming along. That's pretty dicey. I'm going to hitch my wagon to that cause as well and uh, decry that cause. So, I, yeah, it almost seems like it's less than he's uh, taking a moral stance and more that he very cynically understands what's going to further, uh, you know, the, the money coming in for his byline being syndicated across America. Yeah. The other thing that I thought, Katie, listening to Chris telling us everything that we want to know about Walter Winchell, is just this question, is he happy? Because he's made millions and he's mm. clearly powerful and he's famous, but does it make him happy? Does it make him happy? Does Is he a tortured soul? I think that's certainly, I think, what comes across in his later years. There is a really interesting and quite tragic split between the Walter Winchell who was the character, the person who America watched and listened to and all this kind of stuff, and actually who Walter Winchell was. So uh, we've talked about his, um, his insecurities, his fragility, his, his nastiness, like those 
human qualities that I think a lot of us have, but he seemed to have them all sort of turned up to 11 in really quite horrific ways. But he also had this childhood of poverty and struggle and insecurities. He then, I mean, the most tragic thing, which is um, mentioned uh, in a line by Larry King, that the only person at his funeral was his, his only surviving child, his daughter. Now, some of that is apocryphal. App apparently there were people who did want to pay their respects to Walter, like some old colleagues, but it says a lot about the fact that somebody who at one point had tens of millions of people listening to him on the radio, reading his newspapers, watching him in the cinema, heading to theatres to listen to him to sell out crowds, ends up lying in wake with one mourner. And yeah. I think that says a lot about his... Yeah, and it's hard to appreciate him as a as a sympathetic character because of some of the stuff he did was so objectionable. Some of his treatment of relatives, friends, colleagues was appalling. And yet there is something really quite profoundly sad about someone who was that popular being that alone. Once uh, he had decided to go down the, the cruelty path and kind of get, you know, throw, throw his whole weight into just being a super bitch, um, he also <laughs> was uh, interested in aligning himself with very, very powerful people. And I'm thinking about, you mentioned earlier, the FBI head. He became, I understand it, very influential in the whole Senator Joe McCarthy Red Scare situation. Can you fill us in on that? Yes. So along with his treatment of Josephine Baker, that's probably the most significant legacy he left in terms of like that sort of horror side of Walter Winchell. So he ends up becoming the press ally of Senator Joseph McCarthy, the person who led the uh, Senate Air Committee of Un-American Activities to root out communist uh, sympathizers. Now, in the American context, in that era, communist sympathizers was quite a broad term. <laughs> uh, it would include people who were registered members of the Communist Party. It also included people like Arthur Miller, and it included um, playwrights and uh, writers and journalists who were basically what we now probably consider in the 21st century as being vaguely to the political left. <laughs> um, so Walter Winchell became so wrapped up in that activity. And it's actually, you can actually trace it fascinatingly to his previous call out of Nazis. He is attacking perceived communists with the same aggression, the same language um, fluidity, shall we say, that he would previously was calling out people like uh, Lindbergh and um, sympathetic American senators to fascism in the 30s. And um, he was brutal. And the reason there's that narrative there is because you see that in his treatment of Josephine Baker, who he simultaneously called a communist and a fascist hmm. in his right. tenure. See, so it's weird. Just in that one person, he doesn't, he at no point sees the lack of logic there. He just he, he just sees an enemy and calls him out. Uh, yeah, those are sort of the go-to uh, put-downs for him. And, <laughs> yeah. and so um, he kind of cozied up with uh, McCarthy's um, attacks and uh, amplified them in, in his columns. And for a while, he was unassailable. I mean, he, he was always so feared anyway. So it was uh, just a new way to kind of uh, focus his his razor sharp wit and and also throw his weight around. But the problem was the public 
tolerance for for these attacks uh, on you know the Red Scare and the attacks from Joseph McCarthy that that waned somewhat, didn't it? Yes, it very much did, and I think arguably marks the first point in Walter Winchell's professional life when he hadn't read the room properly. So uh, we've noted how his career seemed to be defined by how well he either tapped into or helped lead the American public conversation. So from his coverage of the 20s through to the 30s through to post-war and initially with the uh, McCarthy Red Scare, we shouldn't forget it was very popular. Like the Red Scare was not some sort of slightly unhinged element of the American public and a political fringe. It was the mainstream. It was people buy into it. It it has a legacy now. Like you get called a communist in America or a socialist if you think that healthcare shouldn't make you bankrupt. <laughs> so like like that's still there within the public consciousness. So it says that he wasn't some outlier. He wasn't some f- like some sort of fringe voice. He was more than happy his whole life to to make claims, stories, accusations without evidence. There's almost something quite Trumpian about um, oh, yeah. some of what Walter Winchell said. But then obviously he, he ended up, for the first time, not reading the room and realising that people weren't as happy with his lies anymore now that the lies seemed to be hurting people who were, I don't know, less fair game than the American public took for credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, or obviously, you know, not guilty of anything. Mm. I mean, I mean, McCarthy destroyed lives and destroyed careers uh, just by, it's sort of a, a glorified whisper campaign. What happened to him after after that, after the whole, after McCarthy's star flamed out? Well, he carried on having a semi-successful uh, radio career, uh, written career um, and also famously he appeared um, in the landmark uh, TV series uh, in 1959 The Untouchables mm. uh, he was the voiceover uh, uh, narrator which again says a lot right yeah let's, let's just sort of cast our minds back he was a journalist he's, he, he's a journalist and, and such was his cultural weight that he becomes the voice of a, of a television program that was exploring the era of American history that made him famous yeah, the prohibition, right? Yeah, because I remember seeing um, the Untouchables on reruns when I was growing up as a kid in the states, and yeah, I do remember that kind of like wah, wah, the way he talked it was like really staccato and rapid fire, and mm. you know, like hard boiled newspaper man, and you know, <laughs> this is the way it is, kid. Uh, and uh, I think that probably <laughs> uh, started me down a path of uh, a lifetime, <laughs> a lifetime of slanguage, and. Uh, <laughs> making up ridiculous expressions. But yeah, he was, I guess he kind of in a way returned to his uh, showbiz roots, his vaudevillian roots. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really, really good point. And what's interesting as well with Walter Winchell is just how much his appearance, um, I think what's uh, remembered about him in terms of not his radio work was the fact he appeared as the voiceover for The Untouchables. But uh, throughout his career, he was everywhere. Like he had a radio show way sponsored by Lucky Lucky Strike that, that would then help, incidentally, set off the career of Ed Sullivan, of the Ed Su- Sullivan show. Um, and actually, the, the, those two apparently hated each other. 
Well, it, it, I mean, Ed Sullivan was also a gossip columnist, which I, I didn't realize, but uh, he got all the, you know, the big game because the Beatles were on his show and the Rolling Stones were on his show. So, like, weirdly, Ed Sullivan was so kind of stiff. He was kind of like a, a, a vertical cadaver in terms of his <laughs> charisma and uh, his body language. But somehow he was able to uh, work within television in a way that Winchell was not successful That is yet another really interesting hinge moment in the life of Walter Winchell, because you can almost see the rise of Ed Sullivan, obviously, the uh, uh, the Ed Sullivan show, the Beatles, um, as almost like that was Walter Winchell missing out on the next medium. So he tapped into tabloid journalism. He tapped into radio. He tapped into cinema. He wrote scripts. He was in films. There would be characters who were called like Waldo Winchester was a recurring character in a column written in Cosmopolitan magazine, which was obviously Walter Winchell. But like he was everywhere. And yet into the 60s with the rise of television. And it's so important to appreciate how much television revolutionized the American media landscape and actually made Walter Winchell with his with how he was and how he spoke and how he behaved, it made him less viable. Because what's interesting is that his only legacy on television is his voice. His Mm. voice worked on television. He did not work on television. So you see someone like Ed Sullivan, as you said, who was like, he was a cadaver. (laughs) But that's because that worked, because television at that time was where almost you weren't there for the host as much. Uh, The host was the uh, uh, eye of the storm. He was the calm while everything else around, the mm. musicians, the actors, the whatever. Whereas Walter Winchell was, imagine him as the eye of a hurricane. He'd be a hurricane within a hurricane. Right, yeah, he, he would. He's too, look at me, look at me. Yeah, he was, um, there's a lot in him that you can see in Donald Trump. I think even within that, there's something that's almost almost like um, worth remembering as well. It's just how popular Walter Winchell remained, despite these provable things that were unpleasant about him. And his behavior was crass, insensitive, uh, rude, um, homophobic. Interestingly enough, a lot of his criticisms of people who were Nazi sympathizers often were framed around the fact that they were gay. That was his criticism. So even his high and mighty moments were laced with, a, with, a, with, 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 an, with an undercurrent of unpleasantness. And yet he was loved. Tens of millions listened, watched, whatever. And then you look at Trump and those same points, you know, unpleasant, rude. He makes up his own languages, racist, vulgar. Yes. And people love him, you know. Yes. And I, th- I, think that says a, I think that says a lot. I think that says a lot. Hmm. Hey, Katie, one of the reasons I love this podcast is like we start off talking about Walter Winchell, we don't know much about him. And then suddenly we find ourselves with reasons for Trumpism. Yes. You know, this is the this, this strange thing about, about Billy Joel's masterpiece. Um, and the other thing I've been thinking, Chris, listening to this, is right. if there's no Walter Winchell, is there a Rupert Murdoch? If there's no Walter Winchell, are the Kardashians as the Kardashians are? That is a very good question. Um, I think it's worth remembering that Walter Winchell relied on a longer history of tabloid. So uh, the tabloid as we know it had arguably existed for 50 years before Walter Winchell emerged. So things like a celebrity gossip, um, crime reporting, a salacious photography. Like, there were things like that that existed before Winchell. He tapped into and was a part of a much bigger culture, something that was already there. But Walter Winchell arguably outlined just how popular and how 
powerful one man can be. I think the reference to Rupert Murdoch is interesting because Rupert Murdoch himself was a descendant of a powerful uh, a newspaper owner. But I think you are right that he, without him and that level of individual power, maybe a Murdoch looked to him and went, maybe I could do that. Do you think, Katie, listen to this, Like, if we transplant ourselves back into 1940s, 1950s America? Oh, I love the clothes. So we're loving the clothes. Yeah. I'm probably quite enjoying the bars, actually. But are you and me listening to Walter Winchell? Are we reading his column? Oh, my gosh. I am absolutely... I'm doing it... Uh, you know, I am reading his column, but in that way where you have the um, the sidebar of shame in the, the mail online, and you, you kind of try <laughs> to avert your eyes, and you're like, oh, no, there's a a scantily clad picture of a Kardashian I have to look at it and and judge her physique or whatever like God save my soul I think there is that there's the kind of like you have to cross yourself and uh, ask for forgiveness but you can't avert your eyes what do you think? yeah I think you're right there's, there's something I noticed on train journeys sometimes like you might buy yourself a broadsheet if the person sitting opposite you is reading a tabloid you just start reading the back of their tabloid don't you? Like there's yeah. what, the person you'd like to be, oh, I'm going to be sort of, I'm going to read the, the broadsheets, I'm going to be intelligent. And then there's what you'd actually like to read. And this yeah. is the secret of tabloids, I guess. And this is the secret of, of gossip and people like Walter Winchell. He understood from the sounds of it that there's the stuff that you think you should listen to and read. Then there's the stuff that you can't stop reading well he turned it he turned it into another form of entertainment which is this is what's happening now in culture across social media and twitter that you know politics is entertainment people's lives are entertainment uh you know we don't even need to to bother with cracking open a book anymore or you know watching a, a miniseries because we're following um the daily denigrations of uh, you know, what's going on in American politics, British politics all over the world, and uh, just people who are famous for being famous. And I think Walter Winchell excited our appetite for that. I feel like, Katie, we've come a long way with our knowledge of Walter Winchell. Thanks to you, Chris. Yeah, too long. If you, <laughs> if you were to sum him up in a single sentence, what would that sentence be? A man who captured the mass American imagination unlike any other journalist who has ever existed. Wow. And Katie, I was going to say to you, like we always discuss this at the end of a show, right? Does this person justify their place in Billy Joel's number one smash hit? We didn't start the fire. Are they in there because they rhymed? Are they in there because they just neatly fitted with someone else? Or are they genuinely a massive figure in that post-war period? What do you reckon? Oh, I, I don't think, uh, knowing what we know now, thanks to Chris, I think you couldn't talk about the 20th century without talking about Walter Winchell because he was almost like the town crier of what was going on across popular culture, 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 and politics, history, all of that. I mean, he was there. He was sort of like the, the you know, a combination of the court jester and also the, you know, the scribe, the court scribe. He was... Uh, I think a lot of people probably wouldn't necessarily know what was going on without Walter Winchell uh, just shouting it out from the rooftops. So it's a big thumbs up for Billy Joel. And Chris, it's a big thumbs up from us for you. Thank you for astonishing us, educating us, blowing our minds. And Billy has got another one right, Katie. Yes, he does. Thanks, Billy. Thanks, Chris. You are very welcome. I had an absolute blast. That was brilliant. 
Well, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. I think we would appreciate it very much if you told your friends and complete strangers about how much you adored this situation. You can leave a review, you can subscribe, and you can write us at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.